This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. A quick note before this episode gets started. Much of our story for the next few weeks takes place in Russia in the 18 and 1900s. For complicated reasons, they were on a different calendar than we are on now, and different than what they are on now. So some of the dates may feel off depending on what calendar was in use, but they should be accurate. Thanks. Test, test. Hello? Hello? Yep, okay. Welcome back to the Truce Podcast Season 3. For the next few months, really, we're going to be doing something different. Something that's kind of crazy for a little podcast like this. Most other podcasts that deal with Christianity talk about lifestyle stuff, like how to raise kids or how to deal with sin, politics, which is great. There's a lot of room for that. But what if we did something really different? Like, really different. What if we try to tell one long story that explains so much of who we are in American Christianity? And what if we did that just as we joined a new podcasting network and lots of people suddenly heard us for the first time? The question is, are you game? Hey! It all starts with a dinner party. Oh no. What do you mean, oh no? <laughs> Well, Inspector Gadget met me at the door. With my brother Nick and my friend Mark. Well, we're recording a podcast. We've got to get the sound of people walking in the door. Okay. And you're invited. Thank you for coming over. Yeah, glad to be here. We're going to set up the next few months by doing something fun. If you like it, then maybe we'll do it again. So the goal for tonight was to have people over to discuss the Romanov family while making Stroganov. Most logical thing. Most logical thing you can think of. Right I, I think so. That's right. We're going to talk about the Romanov family, the last autocrats to rule the Russian Empire. And we're going to do it while making Stroganov. We've got our ingredients, and I'm going to post uh, all this on, on the website so that everybody can, can uh, make Stroganov of their own and discuss the Romanovs with their friends and family. Sounds like a perfect holiday tradition. <laughs> Have the round children. While we make stroganoff and talk about murder and the fall of the Russian Empire. You can find our dairy-free recipe in the show notes for this episode. It's in your listening device right now. It's also on our website. I will resist the puns, but to be honest, I'm not sure if I'm stroganoff. Oh boy. It's going to be a long night, isn't it? <laughs> the story we're going to share today has huge ramifications for world history. Sharpening the knives for the first time in six years. We're still feeling the effects of it today. Because once the Romanovs fell, then came communism. And much of the 1900s in America was our reaction to communism in Russia, China, Vietnam, 
But first things first. So uh, what we need to do is we need to brown the meat and then also get the noodles started. All right, you got a frying pan. So how do you feel? Are you excited for something really different? I hope so, because here we go. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars so we can explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. For those of you following along, now is a good time to put some water on boil so we can get those egg noodles going. While the water for the noodles is warming up, let me tell you a little bit about Alexander III. Would you please? I will. He was the... He was, he was the emperor of Russia, and he died suddenly in the fall of 1894. He basically drank himself to death. Like much in this story, not so happy an ending. Alexander III's death was a problem for many reasons. World history is full of issues surrounding succession. Who will take the crown when the king or queen dies? Next in line was his son, Nicholas II, who was sometimes called Nicky. Nicky was just not ready. He was timid, unmarried, and had no experience because Papa hadn't taught him what to do. Oops. Which was no good. And his predecessors had been super micromanagers. Uh, so, like, if you wanted a divorce in the Russian Empire, the Tsar had to sign off on it. Yeah. If you wanted a name change, the czar had to sign off on it. In fact, if you wanted to give Easter eggs to the staff, the czar's staff, the czar got to decide who got Easter eggs and who didn't. (laughs) Did that come up a lot? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Maybe it was a big deal. Maybe people kept them sitting around. That's why Chris has hidden all the ingredients somewhere in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of looking for things, it was high time for Nikki to get hitched. Tsar Nicholas married his dream girl, Alexandra. At this point, they'd known each other for years and years. And Alexandra, by the way, is going to be a major player in the story as we go on. First, we have to drain the mushrooms. Drain the mushrooms? Draining mushrooms. Like we were draining uh, Nicholas's loneliness as he married Alexandra. Right. Now, Russia was an autocracy? What What is an autocracy? I don't know. What is an autocracy? Being an autocrat means that Nicholas II had all of the power in the country. Leaders in a lot of countries are bound by laws. They can't do just whatever they want. Like in the U.S. or even in England, there is a constitution. The people of Russia had wanted a constitution, but the leaders said, maybe someday. 
but not now. And Russian leaders saw their role as being divinely appointed. They believed that the, the Tsar was appointed by God um, and that he was, this was like a holy calling because of Romans 13.1, if you want to read Romans 13.1 there. Sure. Everyone must submit to himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, pardon me, except that which is from God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Consequently, the one who resists authority is opposing what God has set in place, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. That went by kind of quickly, so let's hear it one more time from the New American Standard Bible. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. The authorities that exist have been appointed by God. Consequently, the one who resists authority is opposing what God has set in place. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. We the people are to submit to leadership. If we don't, then things may not go well for us. There's a lot of debate about this verse. Like, how far does this thing go? So what does that mean? Thoughts? I was making stroke math. <laughs> they weren't paying attention. No, that, uh, so some people that would mean just just to, to let everything go and not question authority. Right. But are there examples in the Bible of people questioning authority? Yes, prophets. I mean, uh, the prophets came to David and questioned his behavior. Uh, um, yeah, there's a bunch of times when the kings get get questioned. Think about the Old Testament king Saul. Whenever he needed guidance or was not being the best king. The prophet Samuel kept him in check. Then there's prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, all those guys. And then you got Daniel, who's praying with the windows open, which is like a, pro a protest, a protest, protest, a protest, a protest to the government in his time. Uh, you know, Jesus, of course, uh, told Pilate that hey, I, you know, you only have power because I'm giving it to you. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, Jesus also uh, calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Right. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of that in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Still, there is some disagreement amongst Christians even today. What does it mean to obey leaders but also be good citizens? Should leaders go unchallenged? Nicholas II thought so. To boot, he was also the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Kind of a double whammy. He felt like he'd been placed there by God, and then he was in charge of the church that would reinforce that. Don't let his titles fool you, though. Orthodox Christianity wasn't the only game in town. This was the era of spiritualism. Seances, talking to the dead, seeking physical manifestations of the supernatural. The movement began in March of 1948 in upstate New York, of all places, with two little girls, one 12 and the other 15. They were the Fox sisters, and they devised a way to make it sound like there were mysterious knocks coming from inside the walls. They pretended that those messages were coming from the dead. What people didn't know at the time was that the noises came from the snapping of their knee and toe joints. People drawn into this hoax thought that the girls could communicate with the other side. This was also the era of empirical science, which said that we could detect truth with our senses by hearing, seeing, smelling, and touching. A person could hypothetically use the scientific method to prove the existence of an afterlife. Like ask a question, hear a knock, or maybe two for yes, one for no. If they answer your question, what more proof do you need? Except it had all been a prank devised by teenage girls. 
Now, despite the hoax, the movement spread, capturing the imaginations of people around the world, including the Romanovs, Nikki and Alexandra, the Tsar and Tsarina. This superstition would be integral to their eventual downfall. Superstition, by the way, creeps into our churches even now. Anyone in your church read horoscopes or knock on wood? I'm getting distracted. We don't have time for that right now. But we do have time to add the dried mustard, garlic powder, mushrooms, and onions into the meat. Half a teaspoon. So then comes the coronation. Um, so he, of Nicholas. Of Nicholas. Gotcha. Good job. I'm glad you're following along. <laughs> the coronation is on March 17th, 1896. St. Patrick's Day. Is it really? March 17th. Is it always March 17th? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's also my father's birthday. Oh, okay. So yeah, March Happy 17th. Birthday, is Dad. Same well, birthday. when you find when you hear the rest of this, you might not like March 17th so much. Lovely. <laughs> so, to celebrate the Tsar coming to power, they gave out kerchiefs with sweets, gingerbread, sausages, an enamel mug like these mugs we've got here, and a bread roll. And they, prefer, they prepared 400,000 of these handkerchiefs with stuff. Can you guess how many wow. people showed up wanting a handkerchief? 23. I'm going to say uh, a million. It was 700,000. Ah. There just were not enough goodie bags to go around, which got some people upset. The field where they hosted this grand event was dotted with large holes that had been left over after military exercises. Also, they had a lot of people on a piece of land meant for a much smaller crowd. They got to pushing, and then nudging, and then shoving. Pretty soon, people fell into the pits, followed by more people. In what must have been a grisly scene, humans were trampled to death under the feet of the frustrated crowd. 3,000 died in all. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Good Friday. Good Friday? Yeah. You always hear about people being trampled to death on Good Friday. And... That's Black Friday. That's what I meant. <laughs> Good Friday is <laughs> Just to be clear, Good Friday remembers the death of Jesus, and Black Friday is when big box stores drop their prices after Thanksgiving. The field was littered with bodies. Imagine how terrible that must have been. What could the organizers of the event do? I mean, the coronation had to continue. They piled some of the bodies under carts and hid the rest under the pavilion to cover up the mess, make it look good enough to get through the day. The Tsar was given the option to postpone the coronation, but decided to go on despite the tragedy, to put on a strong face. So they go, and on the way, um, Tsar Nicholas's sister uh, sees all these people waving at her, right, from these carts. But she, it, it's not until... A little while later that she realizes they weren't waving at her. They were, there were people's arms hanging out of the carts that had been piled up in the cart. Dead bodies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's pretty gruesome and disgusting. And this is how they start, this is how they start their, uh, their reign as the czars. Which was about as poor a start as you can imagine. Especially for a people so gripped by spiritualism. It probably felt like a bad omen. After the coronation, Tsar Nicholas and Alexandra were expected to attend a party, and they didn't want to go. It didn't seem like the right thing to do after such a horrible event, but they were given bad advice. And so, with thousands of their own people dead, the Tsar and Tsarina danced. 
In remembrance of this sour event, we probably should prepare the sour cream. Their troubles did not end with the tragedy at their coronation. Japan and China fought a terrible war with Japan emerging the victor. This, of course, must have felt like an impending threat. With China out of the way, there was little stopping the Japanese from attacking Russia from the east. Which is crazy, because you're talking about an island nation compared to the, the largest nation in the world, right? Yeah, gigantic. Okay. But they're worried about it. It's on their eastern end. And so uh, they're getting all this encouragement from Kaiser Wilhelm, who's the chancellor of Germany, to be like, you got to get on that so that those people don't then come and attack Europe. Kaiser Wilhelm was actually an emperor. My bad. That's why we fact check these things. <laughs> Anyhow, with Germany telling them that they had to protect Europe from Japan, the Russians started to think. Russia didn't have much in the way of an eastern port. Their eastern boundary was frozen much of the year. Wouldn't it be great, now that China was weak, for Russia to claim a warmer port for itself? And of course, also be able to better defend itself. While we're talking about water and ports, go ahead and add the noodles into the boiling water. Thus began the Russo-Japanese War as the Russians and Japanese battled over Manchuria and Korea. That sounds kind of like two muggers fighting with each other over who's going to mug someone in the back alley. Yeah, you know, <laughs> basically. No, we get to steal their land. No, we want it. It was about this time that the Romanovs encountered a peasant named Philippe. Or Felipe. I'm not really sure. I think it's Philippe. He's about 50 years old, and he claimed that he uh, had power of psychic fluids and astral forces. Psychic I, fluids. Psychic fluids. I don't know. Yeah. I've seen Ghostbusters. I know. Right. So he's basically, he's, he's practicing the occult. Yeah. Uh, and this is like a supposedly Christian people who are getting involved with this guy. And he also gave political advice to the point where he actually accompanied Nikki on a political tour to go see Kaiser Wilhelm. And it was giving him advice uh, to say, hey, ps tell Kaiser Wilhelm this. Um, and he's just a French occult guy. A French occult guy was giving the Tsar of Russia tips on how to deal with the German emperor. Philippe also told the Tsar not to have a constitution, that writing one would ruin Russia, despite the cries of the common people for a constitution. Yeah, which because, because that would take it away from being an autocracy. Right. Or autocracy. Autocracy. Yeah. Okay. It would exactly. Gotcha. Remember that Nicholas II saw himself as appointed by God. Reducing his power, limiting it in even the slightest way, may have been sacrilegious to him. Um, and Felipe uh, at one point even said that Alexandra was pregnant, the Tsar's wife, the Tsarina, was okay. pregnant. And so she starts putting on weight and stuff. And when the doctor comes to deliver the baby, finds out she was never pregnant in the first place. Oh, <laughs> Heartbreak for Alexandra. Right. Which you'd think would say, this guy's a quack, and he's not a real doctor. And he wasn't. He was actually practicing without a license, but uh, they still trusted him anyway. The Romanovs did not take the obvious hint that Philippe was a nut. Speaking of hints, don't forget to stir the beef. Smells fantastic. It does smell good. Go ahead and smell what's cooking. This blend of beef, spices, and onions reminds me of Russia itself. Because at this stage, Russia was an empire. Over half of the people in the empire were not Russian. But Nicholas was nationalistic. 
meaning he favored the native Russians over other people groups. Finns, Poles, Jews, Armenians, so many people. And since they were ignored in the empire, they formed their own nationalistic organizations. If they could not seek representation in the government, maybe it was time for them to form their own groups. This was an obvious strike against the Romanovs. Instead of realizing that they ruled a big, diverse empire, they disregarded their people, which would come back to haunt them later. All this took place during the Industrial Revolution, a time where people moved to cities to work in factories. And with that came bad working conditions, child labor, long hours, and low pay. Nobody knows how to treat workers. You know, you've got all this cheap labor flooding in from out on the countryside, and they're like, well, these people are disposable. You know, they just keep coming, so we can just, you know, put them through terrible working conditions. And people were working 11 hours a day in these factories. The Romanovs have all of these strikes against them. The horrors of the war, the bad omens of the coronation, nationalism, the Romanovs' friendship with the crackpot Philippe. The regime was terrible to Jewish people. If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, this is the time period that that took place in. Then there were also the poor working conditions. The workers didn't have the rights that we enjoy today. And so the Russians knew, I mean, they had all these things going on. They had the Industrial Revolution. They knew that they had this nationalism going on. And uh, they knew a revolution was going to come. Uh, and they hoped, which is kind of silly, but they, they hoped that a small, manageable war would help bring people together. Um, okay. You know, those small, manageable wars you see all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Well, a bit of national pride, though. Something to, yeah, something to unite everyone. That was the Russo-Japanese War. And... It wasn't going well. Well, and another thing that made them look weak is, of course, that they had no natural heir. You want to have a son, you know, to establish your line of uh, succession. But what they had was four daughters. Olga, <laughs> Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia. And one food baby. And one food baby? Yeah, because the lady wasn't pregnant. Remember she All was... right! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who do they turn to for this? when the world is against them, when they desperately want an heir, excuse me, a male heir? Philippe, of course, the crackpot occult guy, who told them that they would have a boy, this time for real. Eventually, <laughs> Alexandra gave birth to a baby boy, Alexei. But there was a problem. When they cut the umbilical cord, the doctors couldn't stop the newborn from bleeding. Because Alexei had hemophilia, meaning his blood did not clot. If he got hurt, they might not be able to stop the blood. Yeah, that's good. Oh, jeez. Was that my, the mom had hemophilia too? It traveled through the family line, starting with like Vic, uh, Queen Victoria of England. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which it was really, really bad. So they have a, a, an heir, and they already look weak. Uh, but now they've got an heir who is actually weak, like physically weak. Uh, people back then, there was no cure for hemophilia but back then. But it is then. something that he could survive. If they put him in like a, like a, a plastic wrap world, he like could the, survive. Like the boy in the bubble movie. Basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Good way to think of it. <laughs> Did you see that movie? I didn't see it. Years ago. Oh, no. Years ago. I was at a friend's house when I was probably, I don't know, five or six. But it stuck with me because I always wanted to have my own bubble. Okay, well, <laughs> aim high. 
Alexei needed more than just a bubble. If he got hurt, even just a little, he could die. If one thing went wrong, just one, that could be it for the future emperor. Which is a pretty good picture of Russia at that time. A nation that couldn't stand even one more issue. Unfortunately, there was plenty of trouble on the horizon. We'll have that story after this message. Pressure was mounting for the Romanovs. Their son had hemophilia. They entered a war with Japan that they could not win. Their nationalism angered their own people. They also felt the birth pangs of an industrialized world, like learning to deal with workers, how much to pay them, and how to treat them. Hey, really quick, if you're cooking along, the meat and sauce is probably just about done, and now might be a good time to check the noodles. Okay, back to our kitchen. In January 8th, 1905, there are 160,000 workers in Petersburg that go on strike. And their list of demands is pretty simple. It's just better working conditions, constitutional assembly, and peace. They don't want to go to war. So better working conditions, a constitutional assembly, and peace? Peace. They don't want to go to war. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go in. Let's go and stream stream the noodles out. Obviously, there will be some steam from the noodles. We don't want you getting burned by that boiling water. Speaking of boiling, by the way, the anger of the common people was about to bubble over. So in the 9th of January, they marched to the Winter Palace, which is like one of the Tsar's palaces. And how far is that from Petersburg? I think it's in Petersburg. Ah. Yeah. I looked it up. It is in Petersburg, right on the Neva River. They walked to the Winter Palace, unarmed, mixing, churning. Speaking of which, now would be a good time to pour in the sauce you've made with the mayonnaise, sour cream, and beef broth. Mix it with the beef to symbolize how the crowd was stirred to protest. Imagine you're one of the guards at the palace, and tens of thousands of poor people are marching right towards you. You'd be nervous, wouldn't you? The guards didn't know what to do, so they opened fire on the crowd. Yeah, and a thousand people were killed and two thousand were wounded because the guards opened fire on them. And this this event is called Bloody Sunday, which is not it's not the YouTube Bloody Sunday, FYI. What is that? Oh, YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. I thought you said YouTube. YouTube. Oh. I understand. I'm yeah. sorry. Your generation. <laughs> <laughs> this attack on a peaceful demonstration signaled to many just what the Romanovs stood for. They blamed the Tsar for this attack, even though he was not in the Winter Palace during the protest. They were setting the table for things to get much worse. So, this might be a good opportunity for you to set your table. So okay. the plates and stuff are up there. Perfect. While you're getting the plates out, let me tell you that officials were being blown up left and right. <laughs> blown up? Blown up. Yeah, cool. it was, uh, um, explosives were available in the factories and in the mining and stuff that they were, these, these workers were working at. Um, and so they had access to all these explosives and they used them to blow up all sorts of government leaders. In fact, in 1905 alone, they blew up over a thousand government employees. It's about to blow up this meal. Boom! Boom. We were having fun there, but the truth is that this was very serious. A thousand government employees were blown up in one year. Imagine how terrified the average person would be in that day. How afraid you'd be to do your job if you worked for the government. Nicholas's reaction was to place more pressure on the common people with secret police. 
but the people kept fighting back. So Tsar Nicholas conceded a little by installing a legislature. All of this talking made me a little thirsty, so I cracked open a seltzer water. Okay, so that a legislature would be somebody to regulate the uh, autocracy. 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 Yes, you. indeed. So we should probably get some forks, huh? Think of it as installing a Congress like we have in the United States. The problem is that the Duma, the legislature, was too little too late. They didn't have a ton of power over Nicholas. He could easily shut them down and restructure anytime he wanted to, or, you know, just completely ignore them. So what good were they? Honestly, not much. Speaking of good though, it's time to put some noodles on our plates. And that's the sound of noodles hitting a plate. <laughs> that's Fantastic. good audio right there. This is uh, Truce Podcast exclusive. And hopefully your stroganoff is ready too. In this moment of the story, where there is not much grace for the people, we will say a grace of our own. Well, Lord Jesus, thank you for these guys um, and for their willingness to Finally, help Finally, it's time to taste and see how we did. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mmm. The food turned out well, but things were looking worse for the Romanovs. People rioted in the streets. It was no longer safe to be a government employee because of these violent attacks. The Russo-Japanese War ended in failure with many of their ships being destroyed by the far superior Japanese Navy. Russia found itself at a tipping point. Nicholas had made some reforms, but not enough. The largest country in the world was headed for revolution and there was little anyone could do to stop it. We'll pick up the rest of the story in our next episode. For now, let's contemplate what we've learned so far as you enjoy your meal. The story of the Romanovs is not pretty. It's one of strife, superstition, and oppression. It also has many parallels to our lives today. First of all, the Bible is clear that people in power were established by God, even the bad ones. But power is best tempered by honest voices like the prophets in the Old Testament, which is something the Romanovs pushed away. They could not take honest criticism. Second, for those in power, it is detrimental to lose touch with those under your charge, whether you be an emperor or middle management or a pastor. I kind of hesitated to put a nice bow on this episode because our story is so much bigger than just this little episode and does everything really have to be applicable to us personally? But there are some things we can take away. Like it's easy enough for us to sit in our ivory towers and wonder why people hate us. That's what the Romanovs did. They figured, hey, we're appointed by God. We're untouchable. And sometimes we Christians get that way too, where we just don't understand why people hate us even as we're oppressing them or doing something we really shouldn't be doing. Are there ways that we've earned that hatred? Is it possible that we are bringing that stuff on ourselves? And if so, can we, unlike the Romanovs, act fast enough to do something about it? Special thanks to Nick Steren and Mark Shaver for their help with the cooking and conversation. Remember, the recipe for our dairy-free stroganoff is available in the show notes and on our website. If you have some good suggestions for side dish options or subtle ways to improve this recipe, post your ideas on social media and at trucepodcast.com. Truce is a listener-supported show. Yes, we've got ads now, but 
those are not quite enough to keep the lights on. I've still got a full-time job and I'd love to do this instead, which would mean a better, deeper show and a more regular release schedule. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing here, creating a really different Christian podcast, donate at patreon.com or on PayPal. The links are also on our website, which again is trucepodcast.com. You can also find my novel Cradle Robber on your favorite ebook platform and my movies Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls on Amazon Prime. Some of the books we used for research were A Well-Ordered Thing by Michael B. Gordon and The Romanovs by Simon Seabag Montefiore. We'll pick up where we left off with the Romanovs in two weeks. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.